This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Bedside Podcast. I am so excited about this week's episode, and I really mean it because this guest has been a true mentor of mine for such a long time, and it was such an honor to sit down with him and record this episode. Gay Hendricks is a renowned psychologist, writer, teacher, and PhD, best known for his work in the field of body intelligence, relationships, and personal growth. Some of you might be familiar with his book called The Big Leap. It was a piece of writing that profoundly changed my own life. And he also has popular writings with his wife, Katie, on conscious loving, and together their work is just so profound in the couple's space. But this was such a foundational episode because we really delve into topics around upper limits, what's keeping you from living and expressing fully, finding your personal genius zone, and of course, how all of that plays into partnership dynamics, which was really interesting to hear from Gay's perspective. I wanted to also mention that in this episode, I recorded this, I was really sick. So if you hear a bit of a nasally voice, apologies, but nonetheless, it does not take anything away from how incredible this chat was. We also cover on this episode, emotional freedom, programming, the power of meditation, moving through conflict, leaving the victim role for good, and breaking the argument loop. So if you catch yourself in a constant loop, Gay tells you exactly how we can begin to break that. And before we get into this episode, I just want to thank everybody who showed up to the All About Love event in New York last week. What a treat to be on a panel with such amazing sexperts chatting about love, chatting about intimacy. If you happened to make your way to the event, I am so thankful that you showed up. It was amazing to just get to hug and chat with a lot of you guys. And honestly, it was a really great reminder for me that I love doing live events. I love doing things in person, you know. Thank you again for everybody who showed up. With that said, I'm so thrilled to get into this episode. Please welcome Gay Hendricks to the Bedside Podcast. Hi, Gay. Welcome to the Bedside Podcast. I am thrilled to have you here. Like I was saying off air, your book has profoundly changed my life and I knew immediately that I had to have you on the podcast. So welcome to Bedside. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be at your bedside, Tatiana. <laughs> you know, I'd love <laughs> for you to share with listeners mainly how you got to where you are today. And I feel like just jumping right into things because I know that you had a really profound experience in your early 20s, and I think that would be a lovely place to start to kind of tee off where you were and how, how you got to where you're, you're at right now. Well, that's a great question and a great starting place, because in many ways, I feel like my life didn't really begin until that moment when I was 24, uh, which happened to be in 1969. Uh, I was in my early 20s, as you said, and 
I had struggled with uh, obesity pretty much since I was born. Uh, they later found that there was a whole bunch of things wrong with my pituitary and thyroid system, and but all that didn't science didn't figure all that out till many years later. So I never got to benefit from what they later discovered about why I had been. I was the fat person in the family of all skinny people. So nobody could figure out, hey, this guy's eating what everybody else is eating, and suddenly he's getting fat. And so uh, that went on throughout my early years, elementary school on into high school. And I was put on different diets at different times. Like in the ninth grade, I was put on this uh, real radical diet, but the key to it was uh, an amphetamine pill, diet pills, basically, that I took every morning. And so for the ninth grade, I made straight A's because I couldn't sleep at night. You know, I couldn't, I was unstoppable when it came to tests. And <laughs> as soon as they unplugged me from the amphetamines, though, I went back to my usual sluggish self and the, the weight tended to come back on. So, so I'm just rolling up to that moment in uh, 1969. By then, I was in a very toxic relationship, too, that I wanted to get out of, but I, I literally didn't have any money. I mean, I had like $39 in the bank. I was working at a really stressful job. I was a teacher and counselor at a boarding school for delinquent boys. And by day, I taught them everything from English composition to history and that kind of thing. But in the evenings, I had an apartment at the end of a dormitory with 24 delinquent boys in it. And so that was my real job. Didn't start till after I, I got back. But uh, these guys, as you may expect, were a handful. And so I learned a lot even before I got a degree. Finally, I got my master's degree in counseling. But even before I got my master's degree, I felt like I already had about three PhDs in handling difficult behavior. Uh, so that's how I got my start. But here's a real magical thing that happened. One day, I was in an argument with my then partner, and I went out afterwards to kind of clear my head. And it was a winter day in New Hampshire, where I lived at the time. I weighed more than 300 pounds. Like right now, today, I weigh about 180 pounds. I'm six foot tall. So on me, 180 pounds makes me look like, a, you know, athletic rather than looking like a pear, which I, I did when I uh, first started 50 years ago. And so I weighed more than 300 pounds. I smoked heavily. I was puffing away on two to three packs of Marlboros every day. I was in this stressful job that was felt like it was eating me up. And so everything that was wrong, I think, was wrong with my life. And I went out and I got the great gift of something that happened on a road. I was walking down a country road in New Hampshire there about maybe a mile from my house, still trying to clear my head. And I stepped on a place where snow was covering a patch of ice on the ground. And my feet shot out from under me. And I went whoop down on my back. I, I banged my head, but I didn't knock myself out. But to give you an example, you probably have a, a refrigerator in your house, as I do. Yes. I weighed approximately what a refrigerator weighed. And so, you know, 300 pounds is about what an average refrigerator weighs. And so imagine me going down, whoop, and it knocked the wind out of me, and it knocked me out of my normal way of seeing myself. 
I, looking back on it, you've heard of the Jimi Hendrix experience. I had an out of Hendrix experience for about two minutes. I was not my regular self. And what happened was suddenly for about two minutes, I could see down through all of these layers of myself that I'd never seen before. It, it was like I had a layer of fat around the outside that was keeping me from feeling all my emotions. So, you know, if I felt bad enough about being fat all the time, I didn't look any deeper to find out, you know, any more about myself. And so I used my weight as a way to avoid looking at my inner experience, primarily all my feelings. And underneath that, I could feel, though, that there was this place I'd never seen before, which I call pure consciousness. So for about two minutes, I was aware of this big oceanic sky-like consciousness inside me. And I realized it had always been there, and it was always there in everybody else. And it's really our true home, because it's our connection with the creative source of the universe. And so it's there, we come with that, and then we add on all these layers of our personality. You know, one person becomes a rebel in the family, the other person becomes the dutiful son or daughter, um, or we develop uh, different emotions that we get stuck on. You know, one person gets stuck on recycling their anger. Another person gets stuck on recycling their sadness or grief. Another person gets stuck on anxiety, feeling anxiety and fear all the time. So people go into different categories depending on how we grow up. But what's there in the background all the time is this what I call pure consciousness, which is just consciousness with nothing else on it. And I know it's there in everybody. So it just takes a little sensitivity. You kind of have to feel and listen. You have to, I'll tell you what's really important is having a curious attitude and also an attitude of loving acceptance when you go to explore yourself. That was what was hard for me at first, because when I first went to explore myself inside, I was doing it from a critical place, you know, like, oh, why do I feel that old anger? Oh, why do I feel that? Why am I scared? But once I shifted off that, I realized it was just like turning on a light in a new room. You know, there was nothing judgmental about it. I was just looking at stuff that was there. And I discovered these layers of anger and layers of sadness. I was born into sadness. My father at age 32 died unexpectedly while my mother was waiting to give birth to me. And so there was this huge grief experience. And according, you know, my mother didn't eat for months and, you know, it kind of threw off a lot of things in my physiology. But imagine the grief of having to deal with your husband dying and having a new baby, you know, in a very short period of time. And so a lot of layers in me had to do with those old layers of sadness and feeling like I didn't belong to be here. You know, I wasn't, I was causing my mother so much pain. I didn't deserve to be here. And all those things that get a grip on you early on in life. And you kind of forget you have them until later on in life, you realize 
they've been running the show, those old limiting beliefs and those old attitudes about yourself. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And I, there's so much for me to pick at here, but I just think it's so interesting that, you know, I think a lot of us hit this point where we realize that the way we've been living isn't working anymore. It's not serving us anymore. And, you know, I guess my first question for you is, do you feel like people need to have almost like a rock bottom to get to that aha moment? Because I mean, I, I relate to your story in a similar way in my own context where I feel like I was almost like shaken awake, right? Like I was like, I had an experience where I was like, oh my goodness, there's no way to turn a blind eye to this anymore. So I I want to get an understanding from you if you feel like that's common or you feel like there's another way. Well, one of the reasons I stay up late and get up early to write books is I want to provide another way so that people don't have to have a bang on the head experience or a divorce or a car accident or drinking themselves half to death or, you know, all of the different ways human beings bottom out. Having said that, I don't know if I'd got here without bottoming out, you know, because I was so set in my ways and my addictions that I think I needed a big whoomp in order to knock me out of all that, if only for two minutes. Uh, but uh, Tatiana, here's the thing. I think the real magic of what later happened to me was that as I was coming out of the experience, I made a vow or a commitment. I, I said, I'm going to do whatever is necessary to feel that pure consciousness all the time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to do it. But, uh, you know, it was like I made a commitment to it and everything changed after that. I, you know, I walked back home and I still wanted a cigarette and I still was in that same toxic relationship. But I had this path now, which was the path of getting shed of everything that was in the way of feeling that pure consciousness all the time. And so here was my magic diet for a year. I started eating only things that I'd never eaten before. So instead of cheeseburgers, hot dogs, French fries, vanilla malts, quart of ice cream in the evening, I started eating these radical things called fruits and vegetables <laughs> that I'd never... <laughs> before, I really didn't... Uh, consider those foodstuffs, you know, they were stuff around the edge of the plate. Sure. But, you know, I got totally like I remember the first month I had some blueberries that um, were in the freezer and I unthawed them. And I just, you know, like I pretty much lived on blueberries. And then I found steamed broccoli, which I'd never even thought of eating before. And I found out I love steamed broccoli and steamed spinach. And so, as you can imagine, the weight just started falling off me. And so, interestingly enough, it's what led to my very first upper limit where I realized what I'd done to myself. We can come back and talk about the upper limit problem. But my first glance of it was after a month of being on my new radical diet, I had lost 35 pounds in one month. So I'd lost more than a pound a day. And I was feeling fabulous. And I went down to Cambridge for the weekend, 
Cambridge, Mass., to do some shopping. I was also in charge of the school library at this boarding school for delinquents. And so I would go down a few times a year and get books to bring back and things like that. And so I went down to Cambridge and I was walking past and I looked in the window of an ice cream store, Brigham's Ice Cream. I don't know if it's yes. still there, but at that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you've been to Boston? Yes, my so my mom grew up in Boston, so I I've got a lot of New England roots. Okay, well Brigham's, as you know, is sort of like the upscale ice cream. Yes. That's the one you really want to go to. Yep. And and so and there was this family of four devouring a ice cream sundae with three types of ice cream and bananas on it and all that. And I just completely went into a trance as if I'd forgotten everything over the last month. And I went in and I ordered one of them for me. Party of one, please. And <laughs> so I have this gigantic thing. And I remember just eating it like crazy. And for about 20 minutes, I was high as a kite. And then, oh my gosh, once the sugar rush it was like I went into a depression and also I had a belly ache as I, I, I was walking down the street in Cambridge afterwards and I actually doubled over walking down the street. And, you know, a person said, are you are you OK, sir? You know, because I was my stomach was aching so bad once all this toxic stuff hit me and I'd been so pure for the month. And afterwards, I'm racking my brain thinking, why did I do this to myself? Because it literally took me three days to get that toxic feeling worked out of my body. And so I got back to my pure eating. And then I realized, oh, I've got an upper limit on how much good feeling I can have. I allow myself Wow. that somehow if I allow myself too much good feeling, I have to punish myself with some sort of terrible uh painful experience. And that was the moment I started catching on to the upper limit problem. And I, you know, it's a very dramatic example. Most upper limit problems don't look like that. They don't involve doubling over on the pavement or eating a quart of ice cream. They involve things like starting to worry about something that you have no control over. That's probably the number one upper limit problem, the way we dampen our positive energy is you're feeling good one moment, then the next moment you're worried about something that you couldn't possibly control. Right. Or maybe that's something that happened 20 years ago that you certainly couldn't control. But it's those things we do that take us out of the flow of positive energy. And uh, in The Big Leap, I talk a lot about how to spot those, of course. And once you get the hang of it, it's not that difficult. It looks like climbing Mount Everest at first, but it's really like one step at a time. Yeah, I I like that story that you painted because I think it puts something very tangible into our brains about what an upper limit can be. But you had mentioned that one of your upper limits was about capping out at a certain level of happiness. Can you explain that a little bit more? Because I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah, well, a lot of us get programmed at an early age not to feel too good. I can actually remember, I grew up in a single parent family where there was never enough time, never enough money, never enough, never enough, never enough. And, you know, I remember my mother frequently talking about that. You know, there are never enough hours in the day, she would say. That was one of her favorite sayings when she got really frantic. And 
what I noticed was she allowed herself so little opportunity and allowed us, me and my brother, so little opportunity because if we started feeling exuberant, she was there saying, be careful, you're going to hurt yourself. Or another one, don't count your chickens before they hatch. You know, don't get to feeling so good because you'll be disappointed if it doesn't happen. Uh, so there was a lot of stuff that puts a capper on your exuberance. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's what it is that happens a lot of times out of people wanting to protect us. And so my wife, Katie, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks, author and co-author of a dozen books with me um, and blissfully married partner for 43 years now. One of the things she's had to overcome was what she calls don't be too much programming. She remembers, you know, as a kid, she was very smart, you know, Phi Beta Kappa type smart. And she was very talented at things, you know, taught herself how to knit when she was a first grader, you know, things like that, that, that are just precocious beyond belief. And yet she remembers getting so many messages about don't be too much. Don't be smarter than the boys. You know, this was in an age when literally girls were told not to be smarter than the boys, you know, that boys didn't like that. And you had to go along with the predominant male mentality. Fortunately, now things are quite a bit different happily so, but still people get a lot of programming about don't be too much. And here's the thing, Tatiana, it leads to what I call a fear of outshining. Yeah. I talk about this a lot in The Big Leap, where people get afraid of really letting their light shine for fear it'll cause pain somewhere else or for fear somebody else will be overshadowed by it. But I'll tell you, I've worked now with, they tell me, uh, 20,000 individuals and about 4,500 couples. And in working with that many people, I see certain themes and certain fears that people tend to have. One of them is that fear of outshining. But even bigger than that, the one that I would say predominantly people feel is they get caught up in an old feeling that they don't deserve positive energy. They feel like because of something about them or something they did, maybe they feel like they don't deserve the good things of life, you know, like love and abundance and positivity and good feeling and flow of connection and relationship. Those are off limits to them because they feel that they're in the grip of that old limiting, I don't deserve it belief. And, you know, I've, I've talked about this stuff all over the world. And I don't care if you're in an audience in Calcutta or China or Beverly Hills or the Bronx, everybody has got a problem about not allowing themselves to feel the maximum amount of positive energy. And if I sometimes sound like a passionate preacher, it's because I, I want so much people to feel that flow, that easygoing flow, that's when you're beyond your upper limits. And you have to get there one sweaty step at a time, one sweaty conversation at a time, but it is really worth it once you break free and are operating in what I call your genius zone. Yes, and, and I want to get to the genius zone for a minute, but before we do, I'm so curious to know, like, how do we begin 
chipping away at this deservingness? Like how, what are some of the steps that we can take so we can actually begin to rise above that upper limit? What does that actually look like? And maybe, maybe you could even share some of your own story of what that looked like for you. I know weight loss was a part of it, but what, you know, what else contributed? Yeah. Well, what I did once I saw that limiting belief, oh, I don't believe like I deserve to be here. You know, I caused my mother so much pain and difficulty in the early years of her life that she wouldn't have had if I hadn't been there, you know, because, you know, when my father died, I think he left her the grand total of $300, a rented house and a car that wasn't paid for. So it was desperate times. There were a lot of problems she had that I could say, realistically, she wouldn't have had. And so to carry that burden. Now, as a kid, you're not supposed to carry that burden, but you do, you know, you get hooked into those kind of things that are going on around you. And so one of the things, and I think here's a starting place, is to conceive of a positive idea that replaces that one. And like it could be like the way I did it was I say, okay, let me just sit here and get comfortable with the idea that I deserve to be here. Sure, the way I got here was kind of funky, but who cares? I'm here. (sighs) I deserve to be here. And I'm going to open myself to the good things of life, regardless of what happened in the past. Those are irrelevant. They already happened to me. Now, what's as important is getting a new positive thought launched out into the atmosphere. One single positive thought starts you off. Another thing that is really important, I can't talk enough about commitment. The moment you get your head and your heart aligned to a true, sincere commitment, you become virtually unstoppable. And so I can remember like it was yesterday, even though it was 50 years ago, that moment of saying, okay, I commit to bringing forth that pure consciousness. So I feel it all the time, no matter where I am. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to feel that. Here's another piece of magic. Now you, you asked this great question about, do we really need to bottom out? Well, I think the answer is probably some of us do have to, but look what happened right afterwards, right after I did my big bottom out and I made my change and I started eating differently. A friend of mine called me and said he was going near my house in New Hampshire to go to a talk by an old Harvard professor of his. And did I want to come? And I said, well, you know, I've had a lot of professors. What's this one got? And <laughs> and my uh, my friend, who is Dr. Neil Marinello, that I'm still in touch with 50 years later, he's a well-known therapist in uh, Vermont. He said, well, my old professor was my favorite professor at Harvard, Richard Alpert, but he's gone to India and has had some kind of a rebirth and is calling himself Ramdas now. And he's kind of gone off on his own. He's not teaching at the university anymore. Did I want to come? And I said, wow, that's interesting. So we went down, we go into this beautiful estate. I found out that Ram Dass was from a very wealthy family uh, in Boston. And there's Ram Dass dressed in robes, got this big beard. And he's got about a dozen disciples, all these 
beautiful young men and women dressed in flowing garments. And then one of them was playing the guitar. And one of them came over with this bowl of fruit, you know, and my brain was scrambled because, you know, I had really never basically heard of yoga or meditation or anything like that. I was an English major, you know, I, I wanted to write the great American novel someday. So, uh, you know, I wasn't, <laughs> but anyway, I, uh, I listened to Ramdas talk for three hours without ceasing. He didn't use a single note, which just blew me away, you know, because even if I was teaching 25 juvenile delinquents, Middle Ages history, I went in with detailed notes on how to do it. Sure. Even though yes. none of them were interested. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them were violently uninterested. Uh, but I had my notes. And I couldn't imagine where is Ramdas getting this. So anyway, I went up to him afterwards and I said, "Where do you get this stuff? Where were your notes? Yeah, where were your notes?" And he said, "Oh, well, it's just there. It just I just open my mouth and it comes out." And he had a picture of this grizzled old man with a beard and eight by ten picture. And look at it occasionally. It was his guru in India. And he said, "Sometimes if I get stuck, I just look at my guru and it flows again." And so this was like speaking a foreign language to me. I mean, really, it was this close to sounding mentally ill to me, you know, that that he looked at the world this way. But also, I just heard the guy speak for three hours, some of the most brilliant stuff I'd ever heard in my life, you know, so I knew he wasn't insane or anything. So I did a bold thing. Talk about big leaps. I said to Ram Dass, remember this is 1969, I said, look, I may never see you again. Turns out that I saw him many times and you know we became acquaintances, if not friends, but um, he was also in the room when I met my wife. So I'm very, uh, <laughs> back in 1980. So I have great debt to him for that. Uh, but I said to him, I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again, but I just had this big awakening and I want to keep it going. And what would you recommend I do? And he sort of looked at me and he said, you know, you might do some therapy, but if you're over in India, what you'd probably do is a whole bunch of things like breathing exercises and yoga, stretching postures, and above all, meditation. Mm. And I said, okay, where would I get this? And he did this weird little thing. He kind of flapped his hand and he said, don't worry, something will come to you. Okay. You know, it sounded a little mystical to me, but anyway, later I was at the supermarket and I was checking out and I looked to my left and there was a little kiosk of books there, mysteries and so on. But one of them almost jumped out at me. It was called Yoga, Youth and Reincarnation by Jess Stern. And I believe it's still available today if you uh, do a search for it. Um, but what it is, is basically an entire book of yoga postures, meditation practices, chanting, um, breathing. It had a whole section on breathing, whole chapter on meditation. So I just snatched that thing off the shelf and bought it. And I went home and my then partner happened to be over in Maine that day, um, spending the weekend over at her mother's place on the ocean. And so I, I was in, in my apartment all to myself. And so I started in the afternoon, maybe three or four o'clock, 
And I just started going through the book one by one. By the time I got to midnight, I had done all the other stuff in the book, but the meditation chapter. And so by then I was feeling like electrified because I'd been doing stretching all day and chanting and all that. So I sat down and I meditated for about two minutes, just using the practice in the book. It was something simple, like you just closed your eyes and said, Om, Om, you know, very simple meditation. But I just did it right out of the book. And within about two minutes, I went into that pure consciousness space effortlessly without banging myself on the frozen ground or, you know, and that that answered my question. So I never had to have another one of those huge hit the deck experiences again, because I started getting more open to the information. And once you get open, you know, I always say the universe is happy to teach you by tickling with you with a feather or banging you over the head with a mallet. Pick one. Depends on how open you are to learning. You know, so if you make yourself open to learning, you don't have to have as much of those whack-a-mole experiences that happen in life. Have you ever wondered what your therapist is thinking about during a session? Have you ever wondered about their own love and sex life? On SafeWord, two sex therapists, Casey and Camille, answer listeners' submitted questions about sex, relationship, and identity while sharing their own messy stories along the way. Not only do you get a peek into the inner lives of therapists, SafeWord is a reminder that we're all beginners when it comes to queer relationships. They cover topics such as new relationship energy, breakups, trauma, guilty pleasure, and relationship conflict. Find SafeWord, that's one word, wherever you find podcasts, including Spotify, Amazon Music, or Apple. To have your questions read on SafeWord, go to the bio in at SafeWordPod or Queer Sex Therapy's Instagram page. SafeWord is sex therapy unhinged. Here at Bedside, we're all about building incredible rituals and practices that support our unique sexual wellness routines. I'm really excited to share one of my favorite Vulva Vaginal Care Lines, Momotaro Apotheca. I've been using their products for years and I cannot tell you enough about them. Just hear me out on this one. Their body oil and their tincture is so luscious after a shower. Momotaro Apotheca is a certified organic and cruelty-free body care line that works gently yet effectively to systematically address symptoms associated with common vulva vaginal issues stemming from infection and general irritation. Between your wildest sexcapades to something as simple as exercising, we all know what it's like to feel irritation down there. And that's where Momotaro Apotheca's suite of plant-based UTI supplements, suppositories, their tonics, their tinctures, salves, and body oils come in. Momotaro is offering listeners a discounted access to their entire product suite. Head to momotaroapotheca.com and use the discount code BEDSIDE to access your next best ritual. That's momotaroapotheca.com, discount code BEDSIDE, B-E-D-S-I-D-E. I'll see you at checkout. And guys, get the body oil. Okay, bye. I'm so happy that you brought up meditation. It's something that I have always myself been... um, in a practice of, but I decided, and I'm not really a big New Year's resolutions person because I feel like it puts a lot of pressure on people to fix things, but I decided that this year I'm going to wake up every morning and meditate first thing. And it's funny because I've actually been sick the past couple days, so I haven't been prioritizing it. It's hard to breathe through my nose. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to do it. But I 
Okay, I've noticed the craziest difference in the fact that I haven't started my mornings the past three days meditating, and it is just wild. And it was an interesting experience because I I correlate it to almost, I I heard this um, analogy somewhere that I thought was so fascinating where it was like when you start meditating, it feels like you're in like a 25-year-old house you're cranking on the water, all the gunk and the crud, and it's all rusty and gross. And I think a lot of people get turned away from that. But then the more you do it, the more the, you know, it loosens up, maybe you put some oil, I don't know, whatever you're doing, the, the water starts to run a little bit more clear. And I have been feeling those effects of it massively. So I'm so happy that you brought that up. Well, it's been a mainstay of my life for 50 years now. I actually uh, learned to meditate my first year at Stanford in a PhD program. And it was so stressful and such hard work. I, I don't know if I could have made it without meditation, but um, I, I learned how to meditate TM twice a day. And it was really like going on vacation twice a day because I could drop out of this crazy traffic jam of my mind for 20 minutes. And uh, it became such a mainstay of my life. I basically did it every every day since. I haven't missed a day in 50 years. I credit it with a lot of my ideas too, because a lot of my best ideas start to flow right after I finish meditating in the morning. Mm, that's awesome. I've noticed too that it's helped me with my upper limits because I feel like I've gone into situations, you know, meditative situations where... I feel like I'm actually, it's funny, I sometimes feel like I'm physically trying to create new neural pathways. So I'll go in with a limiting belief into a meditation and I'll try and rewire that. I'll try and reframe it, come up with a different thought. And I don't always believe it, but I still go forth with it. And I've been realizing the more I do it, I feel like I'm starting to believe, like rewire a lot of these thoughts. I've been changing a lot of these patterns. The other day, I, um, I've i been calling something in for, for my career for a really long time, and it has felt very sticky. It's felt like there's been a, an upper limit there for a really long time, and I've been practicing and practicing rewiring it. And the other day, I wrote something down with such ease and such flow, and I was like, oh. And it was, it was this moment where I realized, man, these meditations are really <laughs> Working. <laughs> I'm really glad you've been able to taste and feel and see the results because um, to me, it makes so much sense to have a quiet time with yourself as a preparation for activity, you know, to kind of go deeply into yourself. Like as we're talking uh, today, it happens to be winter and in my part of the world. And you know, if you think about how nature has arranged it so that seeds go deep down under the ground to get nurtured deeply during the winter, and then they come out and poke their heads above in the springtime. Uh, I see there through the window why I'm probably using this metaphor is I've got a bunch of things beginning to stick their heads up now. They begin to sense that it's spring and always the narcissus pokes its head up and the crocuses and that kind of even before the uh, the winter goes away. So that's the way nature has arranged it. So let's do the same thing. Go down deep inside, center yourself, and then come out into action. That's so beautifully put. And that draws me back to that 
deservingness and like correlating it almost to to stepping into that power, into that light that you've suppressed and kept dim. You know, one of the um, quotations I have here, I collect quotations, and one of them comes from one of the apocryphal gospels, the gospel of Thomas, which was didn't make it into the official Bible, uh, but it has some very juicy, good stuff in it. And one of the things that comes from it, it says, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. And that last part of it is not a very pleasant thought, but I've known lots of people that just never brought forth who they really were. And they did feel bad. And many got sick, I think, purely as a result of squelching that potential for so long. And I want people to welcome that potential. I want people to bring forth what is within you, because what is within you will save you. If you bring forth your true genius, if you bring forth your unique abilities and what you most love to do, those become dominant forces in your life. And I can tell you, that's what I've been focused on for many, many years. And I can't think of any more exhilarating way to live life. You know, uh, I'm at a stage of life where people tend to retire or sit on the couch or do something like that. But I wake up every day just as excited as I was 40 years ago when I first began to discover these ideas. Uh, because to me, I want life to be one exhilarating process of learning one day more than I knew the day before about about spirit, about my emotions, about how life works. Uh, I want all of those things to be coming more online every day inside myself. Oh my gosh, I'm getting emotional at the thought of that. It's just so many people are turned off from that. And it's so exciting to be in front of somebody who really, really lives by that. I want to chat a bit about this zone of genius that you mentioned. My first question for you is, what it, what would you classify your zone of genius is? And then my second question for you is, how do we begin discovering what that is for ourselves? One aspect of my zone of genius, everybody, it's like a diamond. It has different facets. But one big facet of my genius zone is that I have a way of being able to explain really complicated things in a very simple way that allows them to be put to use in your life. Uh, and I work on that. You know, I practice that all the time, how to do that better. And I've been practicing how to do that better for a long time, 50 some years. And so, but I, I still am eager to learn every day more about how to present these ideas so that they change people's lives even more. But that's one thing that's a unique ability of mine that I I bring forth. And I didn't always know I had that, but early on in my life, uh, I discovered uh, that I had the capability of doing that. So I do that in the form of my books. I'm doing that right now. <laughs> I, uh, I, do, I, I do shows and podcasts. And so it doesn't matter to me what the venue is. What matters to me is that I have the opportunity every day of my life, pretty much, to speak to kind of being a cheerleader for people opening up to their real innate natural genius. And I love doing that. I set up, uh, when I was in my 30s, I chose that as my life path, that I wanted to do that forever. I wanted to create a job I would never want to retire from. 
And so uh, ever since then, uh, my dream has come true. Did you feel like this zone of genius of yours that we're talking about right now, did you feel like that was something that always came easy to you or was that something that needed to be worked on or, or really kind of did it come from the depths, you know, because I, I'm trying to think of the listener who might be trying to also discover what their zone of genius is as well. It's um, well, one of my favorite quotations also is from Michelangelo, who said, if people knew how hard I worked on my genius, they wouldn't think it was very magical at all, you know, <laughs> uh, or like, uh, you know, one of my favorite singer songwriters, Leonard Cohen, I was just watching a documentary on him recently. And there's this one particular song I liked uh, called Take This Waltz. Uh, it's made from a Lorca poem, um, but he turned it into a beautiful song. And he said he spent 150 hours working on translating that poem into a song. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. When's the last time you or I spent 150 hours on a poem? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> <laughs> me either. Uh, but uh, to me, that's part of, you know, like Thomas Edison said, uh, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Uh, well, I work on my genius all the time. You know, like this morning, I wake up early. I woke up this morning. It's about when I usually wake up is around 430 and uh, my wife likes to sleep in till 7.30 or 8. So for the first few hours of the morning, it's just me and our two cats. Uh, we don't have kids around anymore, but um, just uh, me and Greta and Allie, my two British short hair cats. And so we're hanging out together and they often sit on either side of me watching me write in the morning, which is always very pleasant. I have my two uh, ghost-like writing companions on either side of me. Uh, but I was writing after I meditated and made something to eat. I was writing from, say, 5.30 to 7.30 or a quarter of eight. And that entire time, I was immersed in doing what I most love to do. Yeah. And when I heard the door open where Katie came out of the bedroom, I went, oh, oh, where did that couple hours go? You know, because one of the things that your listeners and viewers can look for is what's timeless, what feels timeless? What do they do where time disappears? You know, like in The Big Leap, I, I told this story about when I was a kid, uh, little boy, I wanted a tricycle and I got the tricycle, um, but it was raining. And so my grandmother let me ride around in her big living room, which normally would have been off limits to riding a tricycle around it. The first thing I did was put a cardboard box. My granddad helped me put a big cardboard box in a corner of the room, and it became my office. And I commuted to my office on my tricycle, and I would get off and I would step into my office and sit down. And my job, as I perceived it, was to help people with their problems. Now, where, where did a five-year-old kid get this idea? Because I was, you know, I lived in Leesburg, Florida. There was no psychiatrists or psychologists or social workers. or There was about a dozen churches with preachers and things. But um, where would I have gotten this idea of sitting in an office talking to people about their problems? So what I'm getting at here is I think we need to look inside ourselves and tune in and find out if we come 
kind of pre-designed for from the factory for certain kinds of things. You know that down inside there's kind of a an old calling and who knows where it comes from, but it's down in there and we need to nurture it. I always say, get all the wisdom you can from wherever you get it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter, you know, whether it comes from your life or somebody else's life, just open up to getting whatever you can from wherever it comes from out there, because we need all the wisdom we can get. Mm, mm, I love that piece of advice. And I do always believe that it really comes back to a lot of that. What is that pure joy even that you experienced, you know, between the ages of zero and seven? What was that? What were you just innately drawn to? It's so um, it's so playful and it has a lot of of gems in in there that might lead us yeah. in the right direction. I, I just thought of another great example. I've done a lot of corporate consulting where I work with executives of you know, companies. And I was just thinking of Michael Dell. I used to go down in the 90s and coach him and some of his top executives down in uh, Round Rock near Austin, Texas. And Dell Computers? Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was a time when they were growing very, very fast. And one of the things that just always amazed me about Michael was his ability to implement things quickly. If he saw value in something, he didn't sit around and think about it or form a committee. You know, that's what leaders do. He would just say, okay, you know, and so within about six months, my colleague, Kate Ludeman and I and some others worked with all their top executives on things like emotional literacy and things that aren't genuinely part of of corporate life, but they thrived on it so much because it ended the dramas. You know, people didn't have relationship conflicts once they learned how to uh, communicate uh, better with each other. And so one of the great things I think about human beings is our ability to implement things rapidly yeah. in our own lives first. And so what I did was when I first began to catch on to these things that we're talking about, I just started implementing them in my own life. And I did that for a long time before I started helping anybody else with the same ideas. Uh, but once I started doing that, I found out that um, what we're talking about here, you and I over the past hour, are things that apply pretty much to any setting. You know, I've worked with government. I've worked with, I even did a whole thing with the uh, U.S. Army one time years ago, my wife and I did. And I've worked in so many different settings in places all over the world. And I find that everybody has the same set of issues. We have our upper limit problems. We have our way we keep sabotaging ourselves. But underneath that, we all have access to this new place of creativity I'm talking about the zone of genius where you're doing things that you love to do and get this, that make other people's lives better. In other words, our genius, I believe, Tatiana, is what's, what's innate to us, what we most love to do, that also has the ability to contribute to other people's lives. That when you're living there, you're living, in my opinion, in the sweet spot of human existence. You know, I'm I'm interested too, because I kind of want to take a lot of what we're talking about right now 
and apply it a bit to relationships because I know that you and Katie have done so much work with relationships. You've counseled so many couples. I am really curious to understand, you know, a lot of people come, a, a massive question I get asked all the time is, you know, like, how do I find my partner? How do I find the person that I, you know, is my twin flame, is my match? Do you think once we get into our zone of genius, it's easier to find that match? Like where where does the zone of genius come into play when it comes to partnerships? Oh, what a great question. Thank you for asking that. That's super important. If you can get two people together to agree what what I call co-creativity, that I'm here for your creativity, you're here for my creativity. Let's synergize our creativity together. It doesn't mean you have to work together like Katie and I. You know, we um, we do everything together. You know, we even appeared on Oprah together. They only wanted to take one of us. You know, they only only wanted to pop for one airplane ticket. But we said, no, we're a couple, <laughs> you know. And uh, so uh, all the times we were on there, we were on as a couple. And so um, but you don't have to do that. It could be just two creative people in different areas living in the same household. But here's the way I look at it. If I make myself a congenial, open, loving space for my creativity, I can also do that for you. And so life is at its best if I'm here for my creativity and I'm extending my goodwill to you in service of your, co uh, in terms of your genius. To me, Katie and I have lived that way for, you know, decades now, and it is just so delicious. And I'm not saying it happens overnight. You know, we spent years in the early days back in the 80s of working through our own upper limits and glitches and we were both very critical when we started you know quick to criticize each other sure then we decided to put ourselves on a criticism and blame diet and it took us years to get all the criticism and blame out of our relationship but on the other hand we've had 30 or 35 years now where nobody has said a blame or a criticism to the other person and in the space of that amount of ease, all sorts of creativity can blossom. Yeah. How do you get, because I think a lot of people find themselves getting stuck in the place of criticism or stuck in the place of blame. What did that look like for you moving through that? You know, what did the grace of it look like? What did the practice of it look like? Well, one of the things we teach in our workshop about what it looks like is when you criticize somebody else, it's like going, ha, you know, like, gotcha, or I know what you did, or you're the one that's ruining my life, or if you just stopped doing this, this, and this, I'd be a lot happier. You know, that, ha, that can only be cured by taking responsibility for it. Like we say, go from ha to hmm, of all the things I know how to do, why did I create this particular conflict? Mm. The moment you take full responsibility, not blame, not going, oh, why did I do, you know, that's self-blame. That's just as bad as going, ha, uh, you know, but what you need to do is mm, wonder about it. Mm, what is it about me that keeps having this argument with her every three days? And once you begin to take that level of responsibility, problems dissolve very quickly because all arguments between couples 
are a race to occupy the victim position. You know, one person jumps into the victim position and said, you did X, Y, and Z, and I'm unhappy. And the other person, they don't just sit there and say, you know, you're right. I am the cause of all your misery. You know, they jump into the victim position themselves and say, wait a minute, you did this, this, and this. That's what's making da-da-da. And so once you get into that victim go-around, I mean, (laughs) pathetically enough, I've had couples walk through this door over here into my office that have been doing that for 20 or 30 years, having the same argument over and over and over again. To me, that just blows my mind because, you know, nobody would go out and plant an apple tree in the middle of Antarctica and then come back next year and say, oh, shoot, my my apple tree died. Let me plant another one. Well, People aren't that stupid, but we will just have the same argument hundreds of times in our relationship. But this this is the way to diffuse it, is to take 100% loving responsibility, not not blame, but loving responsibility for, hmm, why would I have created that particular pattern in my life? All right. I really want to ask you a listener question, Gay. Somebody said, how much understanding and grace can you give a partner before reassessing the relationship? Sometimes I feel like I'm having to parent or be a therapist to a grown man. And my friends and family keep telling me, well, that's just how all guys are, which is disappointing and not helpful. What is your advice for this listener? Well, my advice, first of all, is is compassion. I've seen that. I've been there. I've worked with that a thousand times. And my earlier advice, the elegant, easy, quick way to move through that impasse is to lovingly take responsibility for it. Hmm. Of all the possible things I could have done in my relationship, why was it inevitable that I created this kind of relationship with this kind of man doing this kind of thing? That's, that's a, 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 and I say, you got to do that lovingly. Don't do it with blame because that just digs you deeper in the hole. But, you know, like I had to do that in order to get into my relationship with Katie. I had a pattern going with a previous relationship where we kept recycling the same problem over and over again. And I got out at the same old way. I realized, oh, I had this way of being with people long before I invited her into my life. In fact, I've seen this exact same pattern in half a dozen other relationships going back to when I was a teenager. So that's a that's a holy moment in my book because you suddenly realize, oh, I'm dreaming up my life situation out of an old script. And that's important because That's the time to lovingly release it and dream up a new script. And as a former 300-pounder who hadn't written any books and didn't have a good relationship, now to have 50 books under my belt and a great relationship for 43 years and a happy, healthy body, it seems like a miracle to me. But I think everybody can have those same kind of miracles. Gay, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for all your advice and your tips. Honestly, we're just going to have to have you back for a part two at some point as we'll just go really deep into relationships and intimacy. But I'm really happy that we kind of prefaced everybody with 
the upper limit, the limiting beliefs, the zone of genius. I think it's so, so beneficial. So thank you so much for coming on Bedside. I'm so happy that you could make it. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's also very heartening for me to see you in your genius zone and also to have so much useful wisdom that you're disseminating into the world uh, at such an early age. As a member of the sort of the the senior generation here, I want to appreciate you for doing such magical things with your young years. Thank you so much. I really am taking that to heart. Thank you so much. Well, all right, guys, thank you so much. We'll, we'll catch you next week. Bye. Okay, bye, Tatiana. Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening. Bye.